Hi and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. Now there is something that comes to the top of the priority list for leaders time and time again. And that is how do we live and lead in constant change? We're coming to the end, fingers crossed, of global pandemic. But then there's going to be another seismic change and another seismic change, so on and so forth. So I need to talk to someone far wiser than myself in relation to how do you navigate through complex change? So come back to me just after this, where I'll be talking to the wonderful Peter Searcy, who's the former head of talent acquisition, now head of finance modernization for the iconic FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Come back to me just after this. During constant change, your leadership has never been more important to create a better and more inclusive world. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Warm welcome to Peter Cersei. How are you? Welcome to the Leadership Enigma. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Without a doubt, this is now about the 92nd episode. I think you've got one of the best backgrounds we've had so far from guests. So it's a big thank you for that as well. So I gave you a little bit of an introduction there, and I know you've had an incredibly rich career, former head of talent acquisition, now finance modernization, but just tell us a little bit about your background story. Yeah, um, so grew up in Columbus, Ohio, that's in the, the Midwest of the United States, uh-huh. um, really shy in high school. So um, my parents uh, said, we love you, but you must go away to college. Uh, 10 hours away by car. Uh, so my dad, who was a great, you know, an engineer, super nerdy, yep. uh, drew a circle on a map and I was only allowed to go to college outside, ended up in Virginia, which is on the East Coast of the United States. Studied um, in school, ended up going to Japan to teach uh, English uh, after college, fell in love with Japanese, wanted to be a Japanese teacher. Um, none of this has anything to do with HR or finance, by the way. Uh, so started in the FBI as a Japanese uh, translator originally. And my, the early part of my career was in the Bureau's foreign language program. Um, you know, we have a lot of uh, translators, interpreters, uh, helping um, agents do work uh, throughout the Bureau. So it was a great place to grow up in the FBI. A lot of very complicated uh, problems, a lot of adaptability, um, resource prioritization issues, Super interesting. Um, After doing that for a while, then I moved over to the uh, HR side of um, the foreign language program. So hiring linguists, uh, linguist supervisors, all those associated things uh, for the bureau, you know, promotion policies, um, you know, all that stuff. And then uh, I was lucky enough to uh, get my boss's job when he retired um, and became the head of talent acquisition for the whole FBI. Did that for almost five years. Um, bonkers, absolutely. Um, hiring for all 56 field offices. So, you know, we're talking about all special agents. You know, we need like 26,000 people to hit apply now to get our classes at Quantico filled every year. You know, 2,000 um, non-agent employees. Uh, and, you know, we have the background investigation. So for every position we're hiring, we need three people to say yes. And then 12 months later, they get through. So big, you know, attrition model challenges, lots of change needed, um, big diversity issues, um, uh, you know, talent, uh, mobility issues, um, all kinds of things. A really, really great job, really um, 
really great challenges. Uh, then about a year ago, um, the Bureau asked me to come over to Finance uh, Org. Um, this position had been vacant for a year. It's right. sort of our modernization team, 200 people scattered around the country. Um, and, you know, I'm not a finance person. I have an MBA, but, you know, not a finance person. But, you know, fundamentally, their problems were people problems. Yeah. You know, how do we talk to each other? How do we collaborate? How do we mitigate risk? Um, you know, how do we create a common culture? I was like, okay, these are all in my wheelhouse. So gotcha. uh, that's where I am now. Peter, this is why I was keen for us to have this conversation. Uh, You're a people person. You're working with people challenges all the time. I'm just curious, how many languages do you speak? Uh, Yeah, I was a Japanese linguist, so Japanese, although it's pretty rusty right now. And my Spanish is still, you know, really good um, from high school um, and college. So it's just just those two. Um, Still impressive. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about, there are people who may be thinking, hang on, I, I still don't know that much about the FBI. So could you just give us a, just a general overview of, of the size and complexity and, and reach of the FBI? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when we... When people think of the FBI, obviously, you know, we have a huge brand and you think of what you've seen on TV and movies yeah. and, you know, that part is great. But from an organizational point of view, it's about 34,000 people right. of which 14,000 are special agents. Everybody else are all those other things that organizations need IT specialists, budget analysts, you know, everything else. Um, we have 56 field offices around the country and about 70 offices overseas, mostly co-located with state department uh, embassies um, and uh, working with international law enforcement. Our 56 offices are spread around the United States. Um, each one handles all of the national security and, um, you know, federal crime, um, you know, issues that come up through their uh, area. Uh, you know, headquarters is in Washington, D.C., in the iconic Hoover building. Yeah. Um, and it's a super interesting, uh, you know, place to work. Uh, lots of lots of challenges. Uh, Everybody is very driven uh, to the mission. You know, when you walk into the building, it says, you know, protect the American people, uphold the Constitution. Uh, and we think about that every single day. Uh, and it's very real uh, to us. And so it, yeah. it just makes everybody very, very focused on like, what can I do to drive that mission forward? Um, and so in that sense, it's uh, just a lot of really amazing people to work with. I mean, that in itself is an amazing purpose. It's an amazing reason to get out of bed, isn't it? And come to work. We know, don't we, that purpose is so important for organizations, especially as the new zeitgeist in leadership is the great attrition uh, you know, and people really trying to work hard to retain their great talent. And they're talking about the strength of purpose. And you've just there talked about an incredibly strong purpose that the FBI have to uphold the Constitution and to keep people safe in America. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, when we were talking to especially like our IT leadership, yep. it was very hard to acquire um, skill sets, you know, money always comes up, you know, and of course we're a federal government agency. We don't have the same flexibility that uh, corporate America has to um, pay people because it's very regulated. Sure. So, you know, there's always this concern, like, can't we, you know, we're not going to be able to get good talent um, because we can't pay. And I was like, well, you know, for the people who their only, their only focus is, can I make top dollar? They are not thinking about working for the federal government at all anywhere, but we just lean more and more into all these research studies that show uh, people coming into the workforce now, people that are, you know, moving up through the workforce now, they want to do work that matters yeah. and that we have. And you can, I, we can talk to anybody in the world about, you know, the FBI had does work that matters and let's make that case for, um, you know, you can come do cool stuff here and you can feel that, um, 
that purpose driven life every single day. And as you know, former director Comey would say, um, do good for a living, right? Yeah. Not that it's not a complicated place, not that it's not a large bureaucracy. It has some of the same challenges and problems as uh, you know, all large organizations, uh, mid-sized companies really. Um, but um, you can make that case for uh, that purpose. And that was always um, something we really tried to drive home in our um, talent acquisition strategy and yeah. our uh, media is, is you know, really leaning into that. You know, I love that, Peter, because as you know, I spent six years uh, as an officer in a law enforcement agency here over in the UK. And I remember living that passion day to day, getting up and actually trying in some ways to protect and serve, which some will say is an Americanism. But I think that that really says exactly what it what it should say. It, we were getting up and we were trying to protect and we were trying to serve all the time. And so that strength of purpose, I, I think, is not only unique to the FBI, but in some ways you're having to lead and gather talent with that incredible iconic brand that you have behind you right yeah um and you know in the way that could be really helpful but yeah. there is a burden to that too i because, bet um you know if first of all everybody here is here for the right reasons and they are all trying to move that mission forward but there can be a lot of disagreement uh, about the right way to do that and you know especially as we sort of come back to this idea of you know how do we change and evolve in an organization um some people don't feel the need to change you know they're very focused on like no this has worked for us this is our core identity this is part of what makes us us so if we change from this somehow we're we're losing something so there, yeah. there's actually quite a lot of discussion about um you know whether we should change or not and whether this change represents some kind of uh, degradation of the brand, degradation of the core identity, and those become very uh, complicated very quickly. Um, you know, especially you know, as we you sort of referenced right now. Um, you know, after several years of global pandemic, the labor market uh, is a, just a mess. Everybody's really reevaluating. You know, what they want out of their career, what they want out of their jobs, and you know, I think uh, for an organization that is conservative, right? Um, it's hard to make quick changes, but I think this pressure from all these uh, changes in the outside world, it's going to cause the FBI, we're going to have to, yeah. you know, evolve maybe more quickly than we're comfortable with. And so, um, you know, that's, that, that's a lot of what I'm, what I'm working through right now. Well, let's talk about that, Peter, because, you know, you're facing political, societal, global changes, changes very much inside the organization as well. Now, that isn't unique to the FBI, because whenever you add people, you get this kind of dynamic and it's incumbent on leaders to really understand their people, especially as I think we're coming out of a global pandemic, fingers crossed. But let's have this conversation about leading change, because I think it's a very rich conversation that you and I can have. And I want us to go back because you, you mentioned something, I think it was the foreign language program. And I wanted to explain to the listeners a little bit about that, because that really is a wonderful example, maybe, of, of fear or, or loss of control. And so let's have that conversation first, because I think leaders need to be aware of this. So tell us about yeah. that that program. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, um, if you think of what you see on the TV, you know, yep. the F guys in the van um, outside the warehouse, the bad guys are in the warehouse doing their bad guy stuff. I watch too much TV as well, trust me. Yeah, you know, ready to strike. Now imagine all the bad guys are speaking Vietnamese or Urdu um, or, you, you know, whatever. Yep. Um, you know, not all FBI agents speak those languages or, you know, we seize boxes and it's all in Swedish, right? So the Bureau has um, quite a large number of linguists on staff, translators and interpreters to help. Uh-huh. Uh, 
Before 9-11, that was a very decentralized program. Every office hired their own uh, linguists, um, and it, there was sort of no rhyme or reason to it. And um, I was in the program at 9-11, crazy time to be at the FBI. Yeah, okay. uh, but one of the big changes coming out of that was said, hey, um, huge push for Arabic, obviously uh, another language at the time. We could only be successful if we centralize resources because there just are never enough resources, you know, top secret cleared, U.S. citizens, you know, high degree of skill in English and, you know, fill in the foreign language. Yes. Um, there are never enough resources. So, you know, we have to focus the resources we have on the highest priorities. And the only way we can do that is from centralization. Gotcha. Um, 100% the right decision. That's how the Bureau's foreign language program still works today. That is how we're successful. So absolutely the right answer. But that was a real difficult change for the Bureau because okay. you were basically telling all of these executives in New York, Chicago, Miami, Los Angeles, all these offices, hey, the linguists that are sitting at your desk at the desks in your buildings, they no longer actually belong to you. And even if you have work that they could do, your case might not actually be the most important for them to work on. So, hey, Los Angeles, that uh, Urdu linguist sitting at the desk in your office, I actually might need them to work full time on a higher priority Chicago case because Chicago doesn't have anybody. Um, and unfortunately, that like that's how the bureau is going to be successful because we're going to work the highest priority case. And when you have the high priority case, you'll get resources from other offices. And again, that's how it all works, and it works really well. But that was a big sense of loss, I bet, and loss of control for those executives. And we fought about it for a long time internally. And I would say it was about sort of about five year transition of. You know, every time you have to pull a linguist from the local stuff, somebody would call you and fight about it and you explain again, you know, the director had made this decision and why, why I don't agree. Okay, well, that's director of the FBI. So, you know, he gets all the shots and that's how it's going to go. Well, there's so a hierarchy for a reason, right? Yeah, over and over again um, until finally it was like, hey, can we do this instead of that? And I think, you know, that's really a sign of victory when you're leading those organizations through change. If you can try to turn the conversation from, should we change yes or no? Like, I don't, we, we shouldn't do anything till we should do something to like, well, should we do this instead of this? I was like, okay, at least you've moved the conversation. We've acknowledged that change has to happen. Now we can argue about the right way to change. And, you know, should we take path A or path B to move us through, move, move us forward? But at least we're no longer arguing about the need to change. Gotcha. So I always saw that as a victory uh, when we could get there. Okay, so in some ways, it's changing that conversation from just should we change yes or no to we've got to change now. What option might we might we proceed with in order for the change to be successful? Am I summarizing that effectively, there, Peter? I think so, and I think you know it's really important. Um, you know, it's one. I mean, I'm kind of glib about it, and you can say, well, you know, the directors we had to, so we do. And of course, that is true. Um, and in every company, there's going to be a CEO or you know, board of directors or, you know, whatever have you that is is articulating the strategy, articulating how the organization, the company needs to evolve. And, you know, it would be very easy to say, well, they said so, therefore we have to do that. But, you know, I think- You want you people know, to come with you, don't you? You want people with you on the journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all human and there's this emotionality that we face when we're trying to lead people through change. And, you know, for an organization like the FBI, very mission-oriented, very driven people who want to be successful, you know, when they hear something is changing, what they really feel is you're telling me that the chance of me failing has now skyrocketed because I'm no longer in control of my own success. And so that is a very powerful motivator to resist change. One thing I talk to my own team about is, you know, when you're talking to 
you know, people that you require, you need their help, you need their collaboration um, to work on whatever project it is, you know, really focus the initial part on, hey, um, I'm here to make you successful. We're going to work together and we're going to be successful. You know, I'm stating that front. We will work through it. We will get through it. It's not going to be a problem. You're, we're going to be successful. We're going to talk about how we're going to evolve. You know, I like to talk about evolution instead of change. I think that's less threatening um, to people. But I always try to say, focus on no matter what happens, we are going to ensure that you are successful and just try to start with that. Up okay. Front. So there's, there are so many, I think, great learning nuggets coming out of this. One of them is to recognize that when you're going through that change or that evolution, as you describe it, there is that fear or sense of loss or, or control that may come from people. And also there's, there's an element I picked up in a conversation we had a while ago that actually sometimes is there a loss of identity as well with, with some people. These are all powerful emotions, aren't they, that would in some yeah. ways be an anchor for change. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a great, um, great point. I think, you know, it sort of depends on your or your organization and yep. sort of what history you have, right? So, you know, for example, in our organization, you might have things that agents traditionally did that now you're going to take away from them and have somebody else do because it's more efficient to do that. Well, no matter what task you think most people don't want to do, somebody loves that task and they feel very comfortable doing that task. And there are parts of their job they're uncomfortable doing. So what do they want to do? They want to hold on to the things that they feel very confident about, right? So if you take that away, sometimes that can be a loss of control. Also for us, you know, we have people that stay in the FBI for a very long time. And so everything that changes, you know, if you're going to move, like right now we're, we're modernizing some of our finance uh, processes. Yep. And so we're moving from, you know, system A to this new system B. It's absolutely time. Technology's moved on. It's the right time. But half of the team I'm working with was literally here when they we built system A 10 years ago. And so they worked really hard to put system A in place. It's so much better than what they had before. And, you know, if we're not careful, there's a sense that you're destroying 10 years of their life, right? 10 years of their hard work and or effort. Or just dismissing it in some ways. You're throwing it out. And, you know, it's hard because we have very new employees that came in last year. They're like, oh, System A is terrible. Why are we using it? And, you know, what I always tell people is it, it is both true that what the old, the quote unquote old system we have now that we're trying to move away from might actually be light years better than what came before it, but still objectively be terrible when you're comparing it to how technology has changed in the in the world outside, right? So those things can be true at the same time. And I think you have to recognize that very, very tenured employees will see it as, you know, this loss of something they work for, or you're destroying something. Whereas the new people coming in are very frustrated because they're like, why are we dealing with this dinosaur of an IT system or this old process? They don't understand what came before. They have no context. Um, and so there's this tension that exists between employees because now they're both mad at the other, but they, they don't really even know why they're mad. So yeah, you know, really, you know, if we fundamentally get back to you, people are people and people are complicated. You know, you really have to hone in on the sense of loss for the people who are feeling loss and just acknowledge that there is some grief that they're feeling and just allow them to have that. And that is real for them. Um, but then try to say, Hey, because of your hard work, because of all that stuff that you did, you know, ten, for 10 years and you built this system, you know, we're now able to stand atop this hill and see the next horizon. And if you had not done that, we would be, you know, further behind um, 
and we wouldn't even be able to be having this conversation about, you know, changing to face the, you know, for the FBI, it's all about threats and threat actors, right? We're, we wouldn't be able to make this change to more capably, you know, address the threat actors of today. And so, you know, just that's why I talk about its evolution instead of change, you know, we evolve in response to stimuli outside, outside and, you know, bad guys and threat actors, they're always very hot to evolve quickly because that's where, you know, on the margins, on the, the front end of change, that's where there's all this opportunity of, you know, low regulation, low rules, you know, all this opportunity to do bad stuff. So the FBI has to evolve to keep up with that. And so, yeah. you know, really just try to acknowledge both sides because the new people are frustrated. They don't know the change, but like we do have to change. It's time. So Without a you doubt. Know, try to bring them along with you. And it's not just semantics when we talk about change and evolution, because we know language is important. And when you talk about that kind of change within the FBI, Peter, it's not just unique to the FBI that you've got the old guard or those that are tenured and and the new breed that are coming in. And we know, don't we, that organizations now are going to start to face five generations working within their organization. How did you actually get the old guard and, and the the wise and experienced folks to start to really communicate with the new staff that were coming in so that they could understand that change and what they were both bringing to the solution or the evolution within the FBI? Yeah, uh, great question. I think, um, you know, as the leader, you have to try to be the bridge that's, um, you know, it's your job to try to see all sides and you're trying to be the bridge that is, um, pulling those uh, threads of connectivity yep. together. So um, a lot of it is just using the platform that you have as the leader within the organization to talk about the, give people that permission to talk about their feelings about the change and acknowledge the uncertainty, acknowledge the, the loss, the grief. Um, because when you talk about that as a leader, then that clues the new people in who don't have any context oh man, this is actually, you know, something serious. I should think about that. And you get the, you get the chance to sort of tell those stories a little bit and, you know, clue in the new people, but by saying, Hey, but let's talk about why we need to evolve now. And, um, you know, I always try to anchor our, whatever evolution, whatever we change we have to do right now, yeah. I try to anchor it in something that's happening in the outside world that they cannot disagree with. It's very easy to argue if you keep things on, well, inside your organization, things are changing this way. No, they're not, they don't have to. So the more you keep it inside, it's it's easier to argue. But when you when you go to the outside world, you know, we all have, you know, smartphones, we all have these mini computers on our desk. There's new apps that do different things. You know, we none of us makes a doctor appointment the way we used to five years ago. Now it's all texts and, you know, online forms and filling out our paperwork online and, you know, just anchor it in the evolution of technology in the world around us and say like, you know, given all that change, how can we not have to evolve our process? And, you know, we always try to anchor it in on the mission of the organization. And I think that's where you really have to understand your own people and you have to understand what drives them because if you can anchor the need to change in Again, their their fear of being unsuccessful, their desire to move the mission forward. That's where I think you can get that that buy-in because everybody joined the organization for those for those same reasons. And that's that sort of uniting factor. You know, Peter, I, I hear another, I think, really wonderful learning point here because we talk about transformational leadership and the need for a leader to be inside out and outside in. And I think I'm hearing that in in what you've just described. 
uh, of how you approach change within the bureau. I've got another question for you though. Um, I know that we've spoken before. We've talked about grief. Now that's a really powerful emotion. When you go through a sizable evolution within the bureau, are you now accepting that there will be people who are going to be feeling a sense of real loss and grief almost before they even start to sense that themselves? In your experience now, do you actually say to those around you, we are going to come up against some serious emotional blockages because people feel so strongly, as almost as if they've lost someone dear to them, that level of yeah. grief? Oh, yeah, because if you think about it, you talk about your IT system like it's a person. You hate <laughs> it's that like, person. like it's your child. Of course, of course. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that um, we struggle sometimes at work because we're trying to be, you know, you know, it's, right now it's all data driven modalities, KPIs, you know, OKRs, whatever. Um, we're trying to use data to make decisions, which is all very fair. But fundamentally, we're still people, you yep. know, with brains and, you know, there's no human being that is not emotional. Oh. Um, and so I always try to remind um, both my peers, um, the leaders that I, you know, mentor, my own team, uh, that um, the emotionality that we're dealing with is always underneath whatever task we're trying to accomplish. And we have to address the task, which is change the IT system, gather new requirements, whatever that might be. Um, figure out new ways to bring diversity in the organization higher or whatever. And then there's the emotional labor underneath, which is how are people feeling about what we're asking them to do? And you can't ignore the emotional labor because it exists whether you are paying attention to it or not. Yeah. So I feel like the more you talk about it and call it out, it gives people a vocabulary for something that they are already feeling. And I think that's also a, a huge part of tension in the organization around change is I'm feeling these things and I don't know what they are and I'm not really sure how to talk about them. And so, you know, out of that misplaced sense of um, stress or I, I don't know what to do with these feelings, you know, I lash out and I blame the change itself. And I think the, so the more we talk about that, you know, hey, um, it's been, wow, man, January has been crazy. We launched these three new things. Uh, if you're feeling like, it's been overwhelming and stressful. I validate that. It has been overwhelming and stressful. Call like, it out. That is a totally valid thing for you to feel. I feel that way too. So let's just, everybody stop and take a deep breath. It's February now. We're going to like regroup and we're going to look at ahead. So just, just, just call it out. And by you doing that as the leader, you're making that psychologically safe space for them to talk about their own emotions in a work environment. Yeah. You know, and everybody's not quite sure if that's okay. And I feel like you, you have to, um, give them a model for how to talk about emotions at the work, but still in a professional context. Um, and then that allows them to just release that tension. Um, and then we can sort of move on. I'm glad you, you talked about psychological safety, because that's just so important for leaders and, and culture within organizations. And we, I'm sure you have your fair share of type A personalities within the bureau, within oh, yeah. law enforcement. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, I know. And many organizations will have lots of very bright people, very determined people, very opinionated people, and very capable people. So that's a tough crowd sometimes. Now, I've got another question for you because we know, don't we, that especially if we talk about serious and organized crime, they are adapting all the time. And we see that at a global level, not just a regional level. And we know that they have significant resources, significant resourcefulness. So how do you, uh, as a people leader, and how does the FBI approach change, as in prioritizing and focus? Because sometimes 
people feel that there is so much change going on or so much change being thrust upon them that it's almost change for change's sake. So how do yeah. you how do you really uh, navigate through that to say we've got to change or evolve and we know where we're going to focus and we're going to prioritize so that we can successfully deliver that change as opposed to people feeling overwhelmed there's just too much change because the world is constantly changing every day peter so i think a lot of people feel overwhelmed generally how do you deal with that yeah um great point and great question uh first of all i think you just have to flat out acknowledge what you said everybody's feeling overwhelmed there's so much change happening in around the world we feel like sometimes it's change for change's sake yeah um you have to acknowledge that that's how people are feeling. And if you are feeling that way, sometimes too, just say that. Then I think it's really important to uh, address the, why, why are we changing or evolving? It's not just change for change's sake. And yeah. I think that's where it's just super critical, again, to understand the, the, the drivers within your organization. So for example, going back to a couple of years when I was in the, the head of talent acquisition, yeah. we were going through a lot of changes because we, we knew that we needed to be, bring more diversity into the special agent ranks. You know, the diversity of the United States population is going one direction and the diversity of the special agent ranks is going in the exact opposite direction. And let's be fair, th this is a challenge for many leaders in many organizations all over the world right now. Of course, of course. So when we first started to talk about the need for diversity, you know, that just sort of fell flat because of course everybody's like no our process works and why would we change it we want it doesn't really matter we want the best people you know of course the things that everybody always says yeah and so after talking a lot about it internally we started to reframe that conversation as our lack of diversity is an operational risk for the fbi because operational risk is the language that we understand everything is about risk factors and operational success um, and the minute we said, hey, our lack of diversity is going to you know, manifest in potential failure of operations because those are victims we can't comfort, sources we struggle to right. develop, populations that we don't understand. Man, that is like the light bulb went off and everybody's like, oh my God, operation, this is like a crisis. I'm like, yes, it is. Um, and so I think you have to really understand like, how do you get at the right angle for your group, your organization, your company, um, and that's going to be different for each group. But like, how do you find the magic, you know, language that's going to make it very, the need to change very real to them. Yeah. And then I think you have to make that um, space where you protect your employees who are trying to drive that change from the tyranny of like the day to day, like what I call the tyranny well, of the inbox, right? The, like the, there's just so the much tyranny of the no. Uh, I had a wonderful rear admiral from the U.S. Navy who I think used that phrase, the tyranny of the no. Yeah, yeah. So there's that and just that tactical urgency of like there's so much coming in day to day. It's hard to create that space around you to take a deep breath and think about like, okay, what do I need to do to drive this strategic uh, change? Um, so you as the leader have to have to make that space for them, right? You have to say, hey, um, if your responsiveness is a little less on this and these are the parameters around what, what's acceptable and not, I want you to take, you know, time out, you know, every month we're going to talk about this, you know, initiative every two weeks, we're going to meet whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we know that there's never going to be a good time. You know, the, the classic is, well, I'll do that when work slows down. Well, that's never right. That we just don't live in a world where things are going to slow down anymore. So you have to carve out that space. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have to carve out space for work 
that you're not really sure exists. And I think one thing people struggle with, especially on like the admin side of how of a house where, you know, maybe some of the operational leaders didn't come up through HR or finance or, you know, see administration is it's hard to tell when it's not working well, because, you know, like people are still being hired, you know, bills are still being paid, you know, the train is still on the tracks, it's going two miles an hour, but it's not, you know, off the tracks in the gully on fire upside down. Well, Someone's don't fix what ain't broke. Yeah, right. But I'm like, but how do you know it's not broken? You don't know it. You don't know it well enough to know that the train could be going 50 miles an hour. Right. And more importantly, just because it's working, quote unquote, working now doesn't mean that six months from now, something new is going to land on our plate and we're going to have to find bandwidth to take that new task, that new role, that new function. And so like what I'm driving with my team right now is like, we need to evolve and we need to make become more efficient because we know inevitably something is going to land on our plate. We just don't know what it is, but we got to create some bandwidth for it now. So when it does land, it's not like, oh my gosh, now we're all working at 130% capacity and we need to scramble and figure out how we're going to do it like that. You need to just be looking at how can you become more efficient? How can you, you know, really ask yourself, do we need to do this? Is this the best use of our time and create that space? You know, and everybody I think is always concerned about like, oh, are you just creating that space because you want to lower costs and get rid of people? And I mean, I'm not saying there aren't leaders that are going to do that. I think it's very short-sighted. You know, to me, I'm trying to, you know, make space because I know we're going to get more work later and I don't want you to be overwhelmed then. I want us to have, ha- have that space to take that work, even if we're not really sure what it is. Again, so many learning points coming out of this. You know, I'm hearing the need for proactivity, not just being reactive to something. And I think that's so important in a criminal justice and law enforcement uh, sector. But I'm also hearing that balance between the internal and joining it with the external. So when you talked about the need for diversity within the Bureau, uh, which is a need in so many organisations, you linked it to the Bureau's ability to actually lead investigations and serve the community to the best of their ability. And as soon as that those two dots were joined, maybe some of the barriers came down. And again, I'm summarizing, Peter, but how am I doing with that? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, that worked really well for us. And we were able to, you know, we and it took a lot of work. You know, we overhauled our specialization application down to studs. We rebuilt it all. We looked at all the data. Now that's where you go to the data, right? Where are people getting stuck? Where, where are people falling out of the process and why? Um, you know, we were successfully able to increase our minority applicants, our female applicants um, to some, you know, good levels, not where the American people are, but like, you know, better than they ever had been uh, before. And I think that, you know, again, once people get it, like once you hit the right angle, the right message, then you are no longer the only person trying to drive that change. So instead of us going to meetings and saying, hey, lack of diversity is an operational risk, I want you to think about this, you know, after a couple of months, we would go into a meeting and somebody would be like, hey, before you get started, we got to talk about, hey, this lack of diversity is an operational risk. What can you do to help us with that? And we're like, oh, we've won, right? Like now we're now we're talking again about like how to make that change, not do we do it or not. And so that definitely represents a huge victory. Um, but yeah, I think that's where you talk about joining that outside and inside, um, just really making sure that you can paint that picture for people because ultimately people want to be successful. They want to you know, they, everybody joined an organization to do something. And, you know, more and more of those studies that come out now, like people coming to work, they want to do work that matters. I think that's, you know, part of why we're seeing this 
huge turnover, the great resignation, the great reassignment, whatever we want to call it, is because a lot of people are looking at what they're doing and like, this does not matter to me anymore. Like a global pandemic that has killed millions has really forced me to reevaluate my priorities. And this just doesn't matter anymore. So I got to look for something else. So, you know, if you, if we all agree that people want to do work that matters, then you just really want to say, well, then they want to be where they want to be. And if they want to be with you, they want to be successful. So how can we, how can we make them make them successful and how can we help help them be successful by you know creating an organization that is going to evolve with them so that they're always going to be successful and not going to be left behind and, and again peter i think there are there are so many nuggets falling out of this so let me ask a slightly unfair question possibly i, I think we, we could talk about this for, for hours if not days would that be fair probably not but yeah. what are some of the, maybe the, the the two or three top tips that might fall out of this conversation that in your experience you would offer listeners who are leaders maybe in small medium and large organizations who are about to embark on necessary change for whatever reason what are kind of the two or three things that are front of mind for you that you would say to the listeners just bear in mind the following yeah i would say the two top things to me are really make sure you figure out how to talk about the need for change in a way that matters to your organization. Yep. And that's going to be different for everybody because until you hit that right way to look at it and, and make it real to your leadership, it's just going to stop. Like there, there's going to be no sense of urgency. No traction. Um, right. So, so definitely figure that out. And then the second thing is just acknowledge people's feelings about it. And we, again, go back to that emotional labor that underpins all tasks, allow Call people to feel that sense of loss it's okay to feel a sense of loss, even if the change is going to be a good one, even if the change is going to be great, even if half the organization is excited about the new change, whatever it's going to be, you know, you can have people feeling lost and people feeling excited about the same event. That, that That's okay, right? That people are complicated. We can hold that complexity in our hands and just get your leadership to, to talk about that and acknowledge that and give people a safe place to express those feelings and, and just, you know, let them have that. And then they'll be allowed to, they'll, you know, they'll feel like they can move on. Yeah, great openness, transparency, really. It's cards face up on the table, isn't it? Peter, if people are listening to this thinking they would like to continue in some way the conversation with you and get the benefit of your wisdom, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, yeah, the best thing would probably be LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I'm on quite a lot, and you can find me there. Um, the only other Cersei is my wife, so... Uh, yeah, it should be pretty easy to find. All right. And if they connect, you'll always put them in touch with you. So that will work, one hopes. Um, my final question to you is this. So much has come from this episode. But when you think about it from a, a leadership perspective now as well, and much of this has been uh, talking about leading people through change, not just leading the change itself, so people-oriented. What's the best piece of leadership advice, uh, advice that comes to your mind that you've given or received in all of the years that you've been doing this? There's a lot of talk about, you know, being an authentic leader yep. and how can I be my whole self at work? And I think you have to be that authentic, real person, you know, to drive change and be effective. But there's always this debate within yourself, like how much of myself do I have to, you know, give up or change or do I have to be a different person at work um, in order to, you know, be successful? Um, and this uh, amazing mentor that I had, because uh, I mean, I have a big personality, you know, I, I'm really loud and um, she was like, look, you don't have to change the channel. It's just your volume is set at 10. And sometimes you need to be a four um, from a personality point of view. And so I know that sounds dumb, but like that was like life changing for me because it meant I can still be myself in an organization. I can be successful. I can 
be authentic at work and I don't have to change to fit some other mold. I can still be me. I can just modulate that a little bit. Um, and that just gave me this complete sense of freedom to feel like I could bring my whole self to work. Um, I could really put myself out there. And I think the minute I started doing that, um, I just was more successful as a leader because I think people really related to that. Like, man, he's going to tell it like it is, or he's, he's right there with us and he's feeling those things and he's honest about his emotionality. And to me, that was just like this switch that flipped. So that is my best professional advice uh, to leaders is, you know, don't worry that you have to become a different person. Just think about like your personality volume. And like, sometimes you have to be a four or six and you can be a 10 when you're at home. The volume not the channel. I love that. I think that's a wonderful piece of advice to actually finish up this episode. Peter, you've been a great star. I hope you've enjoyed being a guest on the Leadership Enigma. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been an awesome conversation. Really appreciate it. Uh, big thanks to you and everyone there. Take care. Join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or our YouTube channel. And remember to get your daily learning to build success at www.insights.emeritus.org. Download the Insights app and start learning for free. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.